Welcome to the Success IQ podcast, the show for entrepreneurs wanting to create and live an exceptional life. I'm your host, Jeff Nicholson. For those of you who are new to the show, welcome. I'm an expert in performance and mindset, supporting business owners to create exceptional results in life and business. And I achieve this through coaching, training, speaking, and my online programs. I started this podcast to discover how other thought and business leaders create and enjoy success, and to identify the common strategies and techniques, as well as the mindset they have adopted to live their version of exceptional. My aim is simple. It's for you to learn and implement the valuable lessons shared in these episodes. You deserve to live and enjoy an exceptional life, but in order to achieve this, you will need to adopt new strategies and ways of thinking to accomplish your goals. Now, don't forget to hit that subscribe button to make sure you don't miss any of these brilliant episodes. Head over to jeffnicholson.co.uk to register for my Kick Mediocrity in the Nuts newsletter, as well as all you need to know on how to connect with me on social media or join the Facebook group. Now, on with the show. This episode is brought to you by SalesFlare, the super easy to use CRM for small businesses selling to B2B. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I truly hope you are having an amazing week. So we've got another great guest lined up for you, um, Jeremy Miner. Now, we live in a post-trust world where buyers are more skeptical than ever, but Jeremy Miner understands what it takes to not push but persuade customers in the world of selling. As the founder and chairman of Seventh Level Communications, the fastest growing sales training firm in the US according to Inc. 5000's recent rankings, Jeremy and his team help companies close more sales in less time by learning how to communicate to today's cautious, skeptical buyers. His new book, The New Model of Selling, Selling to an Unsellable Generation, co-authored by Jerry Acuff, CEO of Delta Point, is being published late spring of 2020. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Jeff, thank you for having me on. I was gonna, you know, if I didn't, if I didn't know the original OG version of Jeff, I would have called you Geoff, you know, over in the UK. So had to do some research on that. But thanks for all the kind, you know, the the kind introduction. My I'm gonna take all that as a compliment my kids say i'm really boring so thank you thank you very much it's always good to get some praise here and there i'm i met the first jeff the way i spelt it american uh two days ago really in the first yeah the first time every other american jeff i've ever met it's j and no o so it's i know, you know. You're, you're the jeff over there is just much more just looks better on paper yeah. you know it's sophisticated <laughs> But very sophisticated <laughs> Jeff spelling, you know, than the boring J E F F here, yeah. just very boring. You never said the English language wasn't complicated. Very true. There you go. <laughs> so, Jeremy, before we dive into all this goodness about sales, could you give us a little bit of a backstory yeah. of what's brought you to this point? Well, uh, where would you like me to start? Like, I, you know, I don't want to be on here for thirty minutes talking about me. What would you, what would you like to know, my man? Well, did you, did you always want to be in sales when you left? when you kind of like went maybe to college or how, you know, what, what, what was the root of Jeremy? Yeah. Right. So I got into sales, you know, as a broke burned out college student, you know, when I was 21 years old, I'd recently just got married, had a kid on the way. I mean, I was married at 21, had a kid on the way, like had to go out and like, I had bills now, like we were renting an apartment. Like we actually rent in a basement. <laughs> I still remember this. It's so funny. And uh, you know, I got into this job 
where they paid you straight commission. You went door to door selling home security systems in the summer. And their whole recruitment pitch was, hey, work three months in the summer, four months in the summer. You make enough money in the summer. We don't have to work. You can focus on getting your education. So I bought it up. You know, they hire everybody at the recruiting meeting. There's like 50 people that everybody gets hired. You know, little did I know that like two months later, only about 10% of them stick, right? So they give you a script you know, give you some books from what I call now the old sales gurus and basically drive you out in a van and drop you off in a neighborhood, usually a not so safe neighborhood because you're selling alarm systems and basically say, hey, go make some sales. We'll pick you after dark. Right. And I thought it was just going to be easy because that's what everybody told me it was. Right. And they're like, you got to be really, you know, I still remember the manager telling me this. He's like, Make sure when they open the door, you really are excited. You got to show them your enthusiasm and they're going to get excited about what you do as well. And I'm like, really? Okay. I'm going to be really excited. So I, they would open the door and I'd be like, hey, how's it going? I'm here with XYZ company. And it's like slam, door slammed in my face within like 10 seconds. Or I'd start talking about the features and the benefits of the product and service and how great it was and how it's going to help them. And we're the best. We are the best this, the best that. And I started noticing that I was getting all of these objections from pretty much every door. Like, we don't have the money for this. We don't need this. I'm not interested. We have a gun. Um, you know, I need to talk to my spouse. I need to think it over. We're good. That was always the, the hand palm, like, we're good. You know, like, get off of my doorsteps. And I got to a point after all of this rejection for probably the first seven to eight weeks of hardly making any sales. And remember, it's straight commission, Jeff. Like if you don't make sales, you make zero money. And I got to a point where I remember setting down on a curve one night. This was like a life-changing moment. I sat down on a curve. Sales manager was about to pick me up. It was my turn to get picked up on the block I was on or whatever. And I remember like the sweat, you know, you're talking about middle of summer, the humidity, the sweat rolling down my chest, my back. I remember like rubbing my feet, like in the hot, you know, on the hot concrete, my shoes were like hot. You know, I'd worked like 12 hours that day, made zero sales. So I made zero sales that day. I made zero dollars that whole week. I made zero sales. I'd worked 60 hours. This is like on a Friday, zero sales. And I remember getting to a point where I thought, you know, I, I really felt like broken down as a human being. And I, and I got to a point where I thought, you know, maybe, maybe selling, maybe just, it wasn't for me. Right. You know, and, and if you're listening here, maybe you felt that way yourself, if you're an entrepreneur or, or a sales professional or a coach or something. And I remember the manager picked us up and he put in a CD. Yes, there were still CDs in like 2001. This is 20 years ago. And Tony, it was Tony Robbins. First time I ever heard of him. And he said something like this. I could be butchering it, but he said, he said, most people fail for the simple reason they don't learn the right skills that are necessary to succeed. They don't learn the right skills. Now that stuck a chord because he goes on to say, everybody's taught skills, but the people who fail are the ones who are not taught the right ones. And so it was like a, it was like a heavenly intervention came into my mind that maybe, just maybe what the company was training me and what I was learning from what I, like I said, I call the old sales gurus. Now, maybe they just weren't the right skills. Maybe they were just outdated and, and didn't work very well anymore. And so there was a major dilemma going on in my mind at that time because I was in college and my background and while I was studying in college was behavioral science and human psychology, right? The study of the brain and why human beings make decisions, why they're persuaded to do something and or not persuaded. So I remember my professors were teaching me that the most persuasive way to communicate was like way over here. But I remember like reading all these books from the old gurus, sales gurus, and their way of persuasion was like completely on the opposite way. So I'm like, how do I bring in the theory of behavioral science and human psychology 
and bring that into the sales world. And that's how I started to develop NEPQ. And that's, you know, the, the, really the, the, the rest is history from that point. Does that, does that give you a, a basic, yeah. and, and I really, and I started learning how to use human behavior in my sales process where my prospects, I got them to start pulling me in rather than me being like most salespeople trying to push, push, push. Prospects were pulling me in, like running after me. And it was a completely different, massive shift in income difference and, and just results in, in large for sure. No, that, that that's good. I, there's there's loads of questions that could come through that. I think the 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 big one is is why do you think we're living in that period of time now where we're probably more skeptical of sales than ever before? What 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 you know? I mean, you know, it's hard enough as it is just trying to get sales, but then living in a, uh, an environment that is. Oh, you've just you've just said the phrase that I'm going to hang up now. I'm busy, or the doorbell's going, or something like that. You you immediately do that distraction routine. Um, why do you think that is? Well, I can tell you one of the biggest reasons why it is for sure. I think it's one of the biggest uh, sales mistakes that entrepreneurs business owners and salespeople make is they believe that they can just go tell the market and their prospects how great their products and services are. And that somehow everyone's just going to line up and want to buy. And we call that product pushing. Okay. Here's one thing we have to understand. Realize your prospects like you talked about, they are more cautious and skeptical about making the wrong buying choices than they have ever been before, especially because of COVID, because a lot of companies are not planning out two years, three years, five years growth. They're trying to plan out like one, two, or three months right now. So companies in, in, in large, the market, you know, consumers have become very skeptical, right? And there's some reasons for that. You know, one of our clients, his name's Brendan Kane. He's a uh, Wall Street Journal bestselling author, New York Times bestselling author. He has a book called Hook Point. And yeah, okay. So yeah, he's one of our clients. So we do all of, we we do his sales for his uh, his uh, coaching products and everything he does as well. But his, his book is called How to Stand Out in a Three-Second World. You know, if you had him on, you probably heard about it. But he says in his book that there are over 3 billion content creators every day trying to attract your prospect's attention, who you're also trying to sell to, away from you. You are even competing with 13-year-old teenagers on TikTok. That's who you're now competing with for your prospect's attention because they're they're just being drawn everywhere. You know, you know how many content creators there were 20 years ago? Take a while to guess. This is crazy. 20 years ago. Yeah. How many content creators? There's 3 billion now, over 3 billion. Uh, I'll say a million because it's probably... You're, you're exactly right. Oh, there's well, a little okay. bit underneath the million. You read the book. There you go. I gave it away. So there's, a, there's a million content creators 20 years ago. Okay. 20 years later, there's over 3 billion. And why is that? Because it's because of the information age we live in today. Okay. The power of the internet and especially social media, your prospects are being sold to 24 hours a day, seven days a week, month after month, year after year. And when I say that at events, people are like, oh no, I'm not being sold to all the time. Like, I, you know, I only have, you know, a couple of salespeople that come by a week. I'm not being sold all the time. And I'm like, well, really think about it. You wake up in the morning, you look at your phone. What's the first thing you do? You look at your Facebook or your IG and you see what? Ads trying to sell you something. You walk into the kitchen, you're like, oh, I'm so tired. I got to get to the office. I'm going to make some coffee. You turn on the TV and what do you see? Commercials trying to sell you something. You then get in your car to drive to your office or work or run an errand. You turn on the radio and what do you hear? Radio ads trying to sell you something. You drive down the road 
while you're you're looking off to the sides, what do you see on the side of the road? Billboards trying to sell you something. You finally have your lunch break or whatever you're doing. You get on your phone again. You notice that your aunt is pitching her latest, greatest, newest MLM that she's trying to get you to join. So you're getting sold to 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And because of that constant selling that we're going through, human beings have built up a wall of resistance anytime we feel that someone is trying to sell us something, okay? Now, as a business owner or an entrepreneur, salesperson, whoever you are, we have to amplify our skill level or we're going to get left behind in this newfound age. We call it the post-trust era. We have to become what we call problem finders and problem solvers, not product pushers. Now, what do I mean by that? First of all, you know, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to skip this exercise. We don't have enough time, but in our day and age, you have to be a problem finder, or a problem solver, because it's not enough to even be good at problem solving. Okay. Like if you, you know, if I, I know you, I had my camera on here before we got on here and you probably saw some, some books behind me. I can read any of those books behind me, which are all sales books are going to say, you got to be great at problem solving. Okay. And that's, that is true. But if people don't buy from us, then you can't really solve their problems. You can't be a problem solver unless they buy from you. You now have to be even better at what we call problem finding. And that's meaning that to, that's meaning to learn to ask the right questions at the right time that helps your prospects find problem in their mind that they didn't even know they had. And one thing we have to realize is that most of your prospects, when you first start talking to them, don't even know they have a problem when you first start talking to them. Or maybe they do know they have a problem, but they don't realize how bad that problem really is. Or through your questioning ability, you're able to help them find not just one problem, but maybe two, three, or four other problems that they didn't even know they had and help them see what the consequences are if they don't do anything about solving those problems. Now, when you're able to learn those type of skill sets, how do you think your prospects view you? They start to view you as more of the, you know, what we call the trusted authority or the expert that's going to get them the results they want. Whereas they view all other salespeople are trying to push, 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 right? To go in their pitch all the time. They just kind of push them off to the side because they feel like they're getting their, you know, that person's solution stuffed down their throat. Now, what are most salespeople and entrepreneurs, solopreneurs? We call them product pushers, right? Where, where they're taught how to ask a, a few consultative questions about the needs of the client, like, uh, John, what's two problems that's keeping you awake at night? Or what solution are you looking for? What's your budget for this problem? And these are just all surface level questions where they're just going to give you surface level answers back. And then what, what do people do? They go into their sales pitch, talking about the features and the benefits and how they have the best this and the best that, which, as you know, Jeff, how many salespeople that are ever sold to you say that they have the best product or service? Everybody. It's not like a salesperson's like, well, Jeff, we're the fifth best in the market. So when everybody says the same thing and they talk down about their competitors as a human being, you build up resistance when you hear the same thing over and over. Okay. So we have to learn how to become problem finders and problem solvers, because if we're just product pushing, it's like taking a bucket of mud. If you guys can see, you know, see this visual, taking a bucket of mud, throwing it up against the wall, hoping and praying that something we're going to say is going to magically trigger that prospect to buy from us. And we call that hopium. It's a drug that so many salespeople and entrepreneurs are on where they just hope and pray that something they're going to say is going to get that prospect to magically want to buy. And it's such a hard and unpredictable way to make a living as a salesperson or to really scale your company as a business owner. You with me? 
Yeah, no, that that fascinating. Um, yeah, we're, we're definitely going to have this little bit going longer because there's loads of questions from this one. Okay, so the obviously that that there's there's a couple of things that always when they you know you when you know even when you think about sales or whatever and the questions that I keep coming against with clients and even I've experienced in mine is the the objection side and also dealing with rejection. Um, do you, I guess the first one generally the first the first one that always comes that comes up when when I'm having conversations is the objection about price. Uh-huh. Um, is is or it's, surely sometimes it is, but do you think that's just an easy way for them to escape the conversation because they're trying to push a product then? Well, it's 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 twofold. First, first of all, that's typically a systematic issue. It's not like you you pulled out all of their needs, you've got them in their emotional state, you've you've attached their need with the problem where they have to do something and they know they have to do something. They're like, oh, we can't have the money. Okay. Or it's a logistical issue. Okay. Maybe you're selling a hundred thousand dollar solution and their CEO only gave them a fifty thousand budget for the year to solve it. Now, that's not saying you can't overcome that. Right. It's not saying you can't overcome that to get that person, you know, the other decision makers in and get them to see that that $50,000 budget is not going to be sufficient enough to solve their, that problem and get them what they really want. And they'll just pull money from another department in there. I mean, that's just you just have to know the right questions, ask them to get them to understand that, not tell them that because that goes in one ear out the other. But a lot of objections, even the price objection, a lot of objections can be really prevented. You know, we we work with companies and salespeople like all over the world and it really in the industry at this point at what we call objection prevention. Like, how do you prevent most of the objections from even happening in that conversation? And we do that by seeding certain things in that conversation, by asking certain questions that in that conversation that really eliminate a lot of the objections you get at the end. So let's say if you're getting like a ton of objections, there's ways, once you learn NEPQ, what we call neuroemotional persuasion questioning, where you can reduce 50 to 75% of the objections you're getting right now, where it makes most of your sales or more of your sales, more lay down sales. You know, anytime a sales trainer says, the more objections you get, I love this, the more objections you get shows that the prospect is more interested. That is total bullshit. Excuse my language. Okay. There is no science or data. There's zero data. In fact, it shows the opposite. There's zero data that says the more objections you get, the more likely they are to buy. There is zero data on that. It says exactly the opposite because think about all the laydown sales that you got. You didn't get any objections in. So it doesn't make any sense. Like you have zero objections when you have laydowns, okay? Um, and you get 15 objections. And most of the time, you probably lose most of those sales. It just flies in the face of reason, right? So, you know, just basically, it's like a sales trainer saying, hey, what I'm training you doesn't really work. So it's just a numbers game. And you just got to really use your hustle muscle and work hard. And, you know, you'll make some money. Like you don't want to buy into that methodology. It's not, it's not a very predictable way to make an awesome, make hundreds of thousands a year or more as a sales professional. So we're more about objection prevention. Like I'll give you an example. Like if I said, Hey, go ahead. And, and I, here's what I want everybody to understand is that most objections are actually triggered by you, the salesperson and what you say and or not asking. And I'll give you an example of, of one here. Okay. I even wrote down some notes for you guys. So let's say if I said, Hey, John, I just need you to go ahead and sign the contract here. Well, sign and contract, especially here in America, are two words that typically trigger a lot of sales resistance because no one wants to sign a contract that locks them into something they might not want to do down the road. But if I simply change that wording around, 
because I still have to say it, but I want to change that wording around where it's more neutral. When we want to use neutral language and I say, okay, John, we just need you to authorize the agreement. That means the same damn thing, but it's far more neutral. Everyone's okay with authorizing an agreement to get them the result they want, but it completely changes when you say sign the contract. So when you use authorized agreement, I mean, the government does a crazy good job at this. Like if you look at the U.S. government, they have the IRS, right? It stands for Internal Revenue Service. If it was called Internal Taxing Service, which is what it is, it means the same thing, we'd all be in up in arms, right? But the term yeah. revenue is far more neutral than the word tax. So if you hear certain things in the conversation, there's signs to you that they're possibly going to have an objection about when you go through the presentation at the end, then you need to ask certain questions to seed in their mind and eliminate that objection before you get to your presentation or the clubs. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, that does. Because I think, I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's we it doesn't matter whether you you know you can use the same strategy some ways is is it, with new businesses that start networking they think it's they don't see it as relationship building they see it as ramming your product down the throat and i think a lot of companies they get in this mistake of like oh we're really good at that we want to get relationship building and and i think a relationship building in a lot of people's minds is much different how we would think like i think a lot of people think like going in and saying how are you doing today how's your week been who won the game last night oh my daughter got married there too and like trying to be their best friend friend, most people that trigger so much sales resistance because they know you're generally not interested in how their day is going. And you sound like every other salesperson, you build a relationship of trust only by the questions you learn how to ask the right tonality you ask them that make them extremely conversational and curious that triggers the prospect to start viewing you as the expert in your industry or the authority. That is how you build a relationship of trust. It's not talking about who won the game. How's the weather in your town, blah, 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 blah. Like nobody, everybody knows you're not generally interested in that. that. You with me? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And before we dive into the second part, um, could you give us some more um, information about the methodology in the um, NEPQ? Because um, the fact that it's, you know, the fact that it is on the other side of probably what many people are listening to <laughs> yeah, have been yeah. taught. I know my I used to sell when when I left school at 16, I went for the family business and I, I went to sell sweets um, and I struggled in confidence, but I couldn't sell sweets to kids. And I always remember my granddad, who was a you know old school salesman, because that's the way he yeah. grew up. Yeah, it was like, how can how can you not sell sweets to a shop owner that has a thousand kids come to it? And I always felt completely demoralized yeah. because and it wasn't reverse psychology. It was just no psychology at all from him, bless him. But it was, it was just that sort of fear thing that came along. Yeah, hundred percent. You get the fear because you don't, you haven't learned the right skills and we don't have the right skills. See, that's why people are like, Oh, I really, you know, they, they teach yourself people like you need to read this personal development book and you need to meditate in the morning and you, you need to do yoga and you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, None of that means anything when the prospect picks up the phone and says hello, and you don't know the right questions or how to ask those questions that trigger curiosity and engagement, and they just slap you in the face and hang up. You can take all that personal development and journaling, and it's out the window in one day. And where are you going to be then? Right? It has no difference. It's skill level. So if you so about an EPQ, like if you if you remember we were ta you know talking a little bit. So my background is behavioral science, human psychology. That's where I was majoring. Study the brain. How do human beings make decisions? How and why is a person persuaded or not persuaded? So check this out. According to behavioral science, there are three forms of communication. 
Okay. And, and I'd suggest, you know, unless you're riding down the road in your car, uh, grab a pen and piece of paper and write these down. Because once you understand the differences in persuasion and where you are now in your sales ability compared to where you could be, it will completely change everything for you. So the first mode of communication, we call that era. So it's ERA, era one type of sales, more known as like boiler room selling. You know, if you've seen the movie Wolf on Raw Street, according to behavioral sciences, we're the least persuasive. So we're the least persuasive, according to the data, when we tell people things or we attempt to dominate them, posture them, manipulate them, or push them into doing something we want them to do. Okay. Think boiler room selling like Wolf on Wall Street, like the show. I'm, I'm sure Jordan's a great guy, but the show portrays that type of selling. Like, hey, I've got a great opportunity for you. Then we talk about the features and benefits of what we do and we push and we tell them why they need to buy or what they need, why they need to go with us. And it's just like if you tell your spouse that they need to do something for you and then you keep pushing them, you need to do it, you need to do it. What do they typically do back? They push back. It's just human behavior 101. So I'll give you a few examples of the least persuasive way to sell. Presenting. We're all taught we have to have a great presentation, you know, the, the 60 the slide deck, you know, hour and a half presentation and show them how great our services and products are. Here's our corporate office. We've triple A rated budget business bureau, these awards, all these customers. We got the best this, we got the best that, which we talked about it. Doesn't every salesperson say they have the best product or service? Right. So your prospects actually trust you less when you say things like that or you talk down about your competitors because they're used to every salesperson who's ever sold them something doing the same thing. So according to the data, it's not very persuasive if your presentation is more than 10 percent of your entire sales process or conversation. Most salespeople, it's 50 percent. OK, telling your story. I hate to tell you this. Nobody cares about your story when you're selling one-to-one. Whose story do they care about? They care about their story, right? Giving a sales pitch, you're going to give a great pitch, but according to science, very low in the persuasive poll. Like if you if you watch, um, you know, Shark Tank, I think you guys have a version of it in the UK yeah. too, right? Yeah. yeah, you look at Shark Tank here in the US and, and, you know, the entrepreneurs come in, they're all enthusiastic about the product and they start pitching. Watch the, the body language of like Mark Cuban, Barbara, Mr. Wonderful, Damon, John, like watch their body language. Like you, it just turns them off. You got to stop the pitch. We even get our, we even get shirts for our clients that have hashtag ditch the pitch. So you got to ditch the pitch. Okay. You don't want to be a product pusher. And the big, biggest one, assuming the sale, according to the data, very low on the persuasion bowl, hence the term sales is a number game. That's really where it comes from because it's causing it to be a numbers game, especially if you're a more complex sale that requires multiple calls and touches. Okay, now that's the first mode. Now, the second mode is known as era two type of sales, more consultative selling. Okay, a lot of people in B2B sales are used to that, right? We're more persuasive, <coughs> excuse me, when we attempt to have a discussion. Okay, consultative came out in the in the late 80s with a book called Spin Selling by Neil Rackham, a college professor, where they taught you that you needed to ask, and it was a groundbreaking book at that time. You needed to ask logical-based questions to find out the needs of the client. Revolutionary in the 80s. Crazy, right? But what's a potential downfall of this approach when you only ask logical-based questions? We call those surface-level questions. Well, your prospect's going to give you surface-level, logical-based answers in return. And do people buy on logic or emotion? Well, brain studies show it's 100% emotion, 100%. There's no debate about it now. So if you're using questions like this, these trigger resistance in most people because they hear them all the time. John, what's keeping you awake at night? Or can you tell me two problems you're having the most? Uh, who besides you would be involved in this decision? Instead of saying that, you'd want to relanguage it. John, can you walk me through your company's 
decision-making process when it comes to like solving these type of challenges you mentioned? See, walk yeah. me through, see much better. Can you walk me through your organization's decision-making process when it comes to solving these type of challenges? They're going to be more open, right? Rather than like, who besides you would be involved in the decision? Okay. So just relanguaging that or what sort of board did you have to set aside? Okay. Now that's error two type of selling. So more persuasive than the first mode of telling your story, putting sales pressure on them, then, you know, kind of clobber them with the option closed at the end. Do you want the red one or the blue one, but you're still playing the numbers game because very little emotion is brought out by asking surface level, logical based questions. Now here's the fun part. Third mode. Okay. This is called dialogue. This is era three type of sales. So we're the most persuasive when we allow others to persuade themselves. Dialogue, when we ask what you're asking me, what are called neuro-emotional persuasion questions, which stands for NEPQ. And the key is, is where we learn certain questions and techniques that work with human behavior to get the prospect to pull us in rather than us trying to push them forward. Now, how do you do that? That's the $10 million question, right? Can you just show up, give your prospects permission to persuade yourself? Hey, go ahead, persuade yourself. And by the way, make sure you write the checkout for me. Of course not. You have to learn specific skilled questions when and how to ask them, especially in your tonality, and a step-by-step -step structure that gets your prospects to sell themselves rather than you trying to do it. So that's the difference in MPQ. And by the way, before I forget, because I usually forget on, when I'm on a podcast, if your guest want to learn any of those NEPQ questions for like different sales situations and scenarios that they're probably in on a daily basis, um, they can go to our Facebook group. It's a free Facebook group to join. we got about 15,000 some people in there. We started about seven, eight months ago. And uh, what's what's the website? I think you have it. It's www.salesrevolution.group. Yeah, so then go to salesrevolution.group. Uh, right when they join, somebody will tag them on my team and we tag them over a free training called the NEPQ 101 mini course just to list a bunch of different questions for different situations that they're welcome to use, which they go out and use it. They're going to get results right away. So they're welcome to have that. If they want. That's brilliant. Uh, yeah. I'll make sure that goes on the, the show notes as well. So they, they know exactly what they do. As I mentioned, this episode is sponsored by SalesFlare. So do you have more work with your CRM that you can keep up with? While other CRM software expects you to fill it out manually, SalesFlare automates all of the data input for you. All you need to do is just head to salesflare.com and using the code SUCCESSIQ, you can get 20% off for the next three months. Join me and many other users around the world in using this automated and super easy to use CRM for small businesses selling B2B. Now, on with the show. Um, okay, so we're going to go to the second part of the show um, where I ask... Oh, I'm so excited. I wrote, I wrote down some notes for this. <laughs> okay, so question number one is, on average, how much time roughly do you dedicate to self-development a week? Okay, so self-development might mean something for me compared to somebody else, but self-development to me is anything that has to do with selling, anything that has to do with business, anything that has to do with building a better team environment. I don't just, it wouldn't be just like a personal growth book to me. If that, I don't know, it might be different to everybody, but I, for the last 20 years, I'm religious about this. The first training event I ever went to was by a man uh, by the name of Brian Tracy. Actually, you know, the, the author, if you're, you know, probably heard of Brian Tracy. I'm really good friends with him. Our first product we actually did together about three years ago um, called the Ultimate Closers Masterclass. But that was the first event I went to. I was 21, had no idea about sales, didn't know what was going on. And one thing that stuck out to me is he told me, uh, told the audience that he reads three books a month 
every single year. So he reads, what is that? 36 books a month, every single year. Plus he listens to one or two audio books a month as well. So he's basically inhaling four to five books every month. So about 50 books every year. And he had done that since he was like 35 and he was like 65 at this point or 60 or something like that. Okay. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do what he did. So ever since that day, I read religiously. All right. I literally spend 45 minutes to an hour of every day dedicated to it right when I get in the morning because I don't want to read it night because I don't remember it. And I read three books a month and I listen to two audio books in my car every single month. And I've done that for 20 years. So I don't even know how many that is. It's a lot. So I, uh, I, I definitely I mean, that's helped me get where I am. Right. Without that, I, I wouldn't be 10 percent of what we're doing now. Interesting enough, because obviously that's that's a, an awful consumption of data, an awful lot of stuff. When you listen to the audiobooks, do you listen to it at high speed or do you just listen to it normal? I listen it to 1.5. Uh, 1.5 is good for me. Two is too fast for my brain. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from Arkansas. We're not the sharpest tools in the shed down there. So I have to, on audio, I read it at 1.5 speed, which is probably the speed I read the book. I'm, I'm fairly... I'm fairly fast with reading the book, but I, I mark it up a lot. I don't just read to read. I like want to learn something. So I mark the book up. Um, so that's why I have to dedicate almost an hour a day to read. And do you always go for the full book or do you do, um, I mean, an example that comes to mind is like Blinkist where it's snapshots of the nuggets that are in it. I do the full, I do the full book. I do the full book, especially in sales, because what's a nugget to some person might be completely different nugget to me as a sales trainer. If that makes sense. So I always do the full book. Now, I'm going to be, I'm going to admit there's a few sales books I've read that literally like I got dumber by reading them. They were so old school, but even if it's an old school book and I read it and, I'm, and I might only one get one nugget out of it. And I'm like, okay, we could relanguage that to this and it's going to be way better. And it helps, you know? Yeah. yeah, Brilliant. Um, okay. Question number two, what book, and it can be any book and judging by what I saw behind you, this could be challenging for you has made the biggest impact to your self-development or personal growth and why? Well, I have over 3,500 books. So just the books you saw behind me are just like a thousand of those or 1,200. Those are just all sales books behind me. Um, so I haven't even read all the books I bought, but they're, they're there. Um, but the biggest book as far as like, I would say my best sales book I read was just more on the psychology behind how buyers have changed is by Daniel Pink. And it's called The Sell as Human. That's a really good one on buyer psychology. It's not going to give you the tech. Like you ask this question here, you do this here. It's not tactical like that. It's just more like theory about behavioral science, but it's very true. That's a really good book on that. And I'd say my favorite personal development growth book uh, about changing your mindset would be Joseph Murray uh, Murphy, Power of Your Subconscious Mind. That's a really good book. Excellent. And that was Joseph Murphy, wasn't it? Yeah. And that was written in like the 1930s. It's, it's been, it's been, you know, updated, you know, two or three times, but that's a huge book. Power of your subconscious mind. You have no idea the power you have. Once you train your mind to think a certain way, it's crazy. And that's, and that's the thing, isn't it? It's the willingness to try. 100%. It's the willingness to put the effort into it to grow and not let your ego kind of like go, I know everything. It's just the, oh you know, yeah. Cause if you, if you have an ego, especially if you're in sales and you think you never think like, oh, I make 150,000 a year or 200,000 a year. Well, you're going to stay there forever. You're just never going to grow. You're never going to advance your skill level. So ego is the silent killer with most people. And um, question number three, what app makes the biggest impact to your business or personal life? Well, personal life would probably be ESPN because I watch a lot of sports. <laughs> so my personal life would probably be ESPN. Um, I would say it's an app for, app for business. Um, 
Facebook, you know, I'm on Facebook. A lot of times we have big Facebook groups. We drive a lot of traffic through Facebook. So I'm going to say Facebook's going to have the, the biggest impact on an app for business for sure. I do like watching people post about their cats though. You know, very inspired. Who doesn't? Furry, the furry kitties, you know, I love those. Well, who doesn't? Who do, I don't even like cats, but I like watching those posts. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you think that the um from some your personal sort of approach to facebook do you feel that all of the bad publicity that facebook has changed the way people relate to facebook or do you still see that doesn't really make a difference uh you mean like uh, political stuff or what do you mean yeah, well, it, I was speaking to someone the other day, and they came up with a thing going, "Well, I don't touch it anymore because I, I don't, I don't trust it to to use it for my business anymore." Tell me the right information. Well, it just, yeah, it just depends. It's, it's such a hairy situation, you know. Um, I, I think one thing, and I don't, I don't really get into politics. I'm just kind of right in the middle. I'm just like, okay, you guys over on this side, you're crazy. You guys on here, this is crazy. Like, I'm just kind of in the middle. I'm just like, I stick to sales. Yeah, it's the safest place. I'm right in the middle. I just stick to sales training. I, you know, this is what we do. I don't care if you're this way, that way. We got clients with every different type of belief. We love everybody, right? Uh, doesn't doesn't matter to us. But I think one big mistake that a lot of the social media platforms did is they have created a major competitor uh, by banning Trump and kind of that side of the aisle because Trump's not an idiot, right? You might like him, you know, he's but he's not stupid, okay? You don't become a billionaire by accident. He didn't inherit a billion dollars. He became a billionaire by, obviously, he's a smart dude. So now that he's starting this other social media platform, the what's it called? Truth Social or something like that. I don't know. If they've, already, they've already raised like $3 billion in capital to put that in there. It's a safe bet for investors. That will blow up. And they're going to take a good share of Facebook's market and Twitter's market and YouTube's market. They just will. So they ultimately created probably the biggest competitor they will ever have. I don't know if that was the smartest business move, but that's just my, in my mind that, that, so, you know, I think, I think that, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of other social media platforms that, that uh, people join from any political ideology. They're going to be huge to advertise on as well. No, that's great. It's just I'm always interested where businesses use things like Facebook or, um, you know, WhatsApp as a community communication platform or whatever. I always find it quite interesting about. We're big on Facebook. Like we do most of our, our revenue through Facebook leads and in different generations. We obviously do a lot of cold calling to B2B, but now we're starting to get bigger. We just started an IG account two months ago. We've already got like 35,000 followers. So that's growing like rapidly. So we're getting into that. And uh, actually about to get into TikTok as well, because we want to capture that younger data. You know, they might be 15 now, but they're going to be in sales in five, six years. And we want them to have some of that content now. And when they think of sales, they're going to come to the right place. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? That generational thing. Like I was telling my kids the other day, um, there was, they said something and they said, oh, um, I said, oh, I've got, I've just signed up for TikTok. And they like looked at me and laughed. And I went, <laughs> what? And they went, TikTok, you. I went, I don't know, but I'm going to have a look and see because I could get people from there to come and communicate with me. I said, so I'm going to have a look. My assumption before I started watching, it was a bunch of people just dancing in the middle of a, a zebra crossing um, in the middle of some city doing some strange dancing process. And just, so it's, 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 again, it's that generational understanding, isn't it? Well, it's a, it's a, 
It's a great organic platform. You know, I was on a podcast with a guy named Brad Lee about five months ago called Dropping Bombs. It's a huge podcast over here for entrepreneurs, a couple hundred thousand downloads per show. And I remember he took like a 60 second clip of our hour long podcast and posted it on his TikTok channel. And it got like 4.8 million views in like a week. And we're like, okay, maybe we should open up a TikTok channel. You know, we didn't even have a TikTok channel that none of those people could have followed us. Um, question number four is what's your biggest business mistake that turned into a valuable lesson and what did it teach you? Uh, yeah, the first year of our business, because this we're going into our fourth year now, but the first year of business just hired the wrong people that didn't have the same vision as I did. And it cost me a lot of time, cost me a lot of heartache, and it cost me a lot of money. So it's really hiring the right people to work with and the right team and the right culture. Once you have that, it's extremely easy to scale. I'm not saying it's easy, but it becomes much, much easier. So it's, just, it's hiring the right people around you, working with the right team. That, that makes everything, you can have the greatest product in the world, but if you don't have the, the right team around it, it just doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and when you do that, do you use um, biometrics and biometrics? Do you use personality assessors like DISC or Myers-Briggs or anything? Or what, what is it that you do to find? We do use DISC. We use DISC, but it's really ultimately uh, now we run the organization much differently. Like our average salesperson is probably the age of 20 to 30. We hire very, very young. And there's a specific reason why we do that is because we want to train them the right skills from ground up. We don't yeah. want to, now there's a few exceptions. Like we have older salespeople too, but that are my age, you know, the old guys, everybody calls me uncle Jay in the company. I'm in my early forties. I'm like, what, how did I become the uncle? What's going on? I'm like the oldest guy in the company, you know, but uh, so we make exceptions obviously based on their talent, but it's, it's far easier for us to train somebody from ground one, the right skills compared to somebody that's been in sales 25 years, been taught these old school techniques and we like to have to rewire their brain. So we hire very young and we build that culture where it's just very competitive, but it's also everybody wants to help each other because everybody's bought into the vision of where the company is going for the, the consumer to get them those type of skills. So everybody's bought in there. We have very, very low attrition. We, we think we have 117 salespeople. I think we've had two leave in the last two years. And how do you, how do you, how do you think, what do you think's the, um, and, and I don't like using the word secret, but what do you think is that sort of magic source that, uh, that gets people to buy into that culture so well? It's being transparent with them. So they know where the company's going. We have a profit, you know, we have 5% of the company held back in like a profit sharing that we have for like employees that perform. We just, if you perform, you're going to do really well with us. Now, if you don't perform, we're going to go in and, and train you how to perform better. But ultimately, if you can't take the skills we teach you or do anything with them or never use them, you're just not a good fit with our company. So when we hire, we're looking for the right type of person that is willing to grow, that has less of an ego and want to actually do something very special. And that's how we hire. We've turned down some people that were already decent, pretty good dang salespeople that had been in sales for 20 years, but in the interview process had such a high ego. We're just like, they're not going to be a good fit for our culture. They're going to bring down everybody else. So we don't hire um, number five, what are your challenges in harmonizing work and life and how do you manage it? This is what I'm still working on. Just going to be real. Um, you know, when I, when I get home, uh, you know, cause I'm 24 seven, when you own a business, like, you know, 
it, you can't just like show up at home, like not even think about like I punch the clock in, I punch the clock out. It's not the way a business owner works if you want to have a scaled large company, right? So what I have to do is when I get home, and I don't do this all the time, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I literally, let's say I get home at five and maybe from 5.30 to eight, I just, I have to put my phone over on the side and just not look at it. It's very hard for me to do because I want, I want to spend time with, you know, with my three-year-old daughter and, and play with her. My other kids are older, you know, they're teenagers, so they never want to see dads. So it doesn't matter. Uh, but <laughs> one thing that's harder for me to do it is we have our U.S.-based headquarters here in Scottsdale, Arizona, but we have our international headquarters in Sydney, Australia. And now we have a regional office in Dubai. So three completely different time zones. Now, my business partner, the CEO of our company, is in our Sydney, Australia office. Also, our chief revenue officer is in our Sydney office. Our chief sales officer is in our Dubai office. So you know about three different, completely different time zones. So it's like 24 hours a day. So when I, you know, when I, let's say I'm leaving, like our Sydney office comes online probably about one or two in the afternoon here, Mountain Standard Time. So I have maybe three or four hours to be with them. Okay. So maybe it's seven or night, there's some emergency, you know, my Sierra calls me at seven 30 at night. Cause it's like one in the afternoon for him. And yeah, I can't ignore the call forever. You know, if I've got to do it and then Dubai, on the other hand, let's say the chief sales officer needs to get with me. You know, I'm up in, in my office at five in the morning or in my home office, you know, working with that team. So it's uh, the time zone things or when you have an international company are a little bit more difficult, but you know, if you dedicate at least two or three hours a night and just turn your phone off or at least try to do that, that typically helps. I'm still working on it. Definitely not solved that one yet. Yeah, well, it, it is. It's like you say, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I use harmonizing, but not balance, because I think balance is a myth. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, I think there's too many people trying to achieve this sort of Zen, like 50-50 split. And if you own a business, well, even if you're employed, but I think especially from my experience, when you own a business, that that ain't never going to happen. And I think um, I think is when you're able, as you say, is prioritize time. I mean, my kids are are old now and um i was like you i got married in my early 20s but my eldest is 21 and my my youngest is 20 they're, they're not really at home much um and it's and it's even it's even that as they get older and the, they leave the nest it doesn't mean you you have to necessarily go oh now i've got all this time because it's still about self-care but there's also that thing of going you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, tonight I'll probably be up for a couple of hours doing some work because I know the house is going to be quiet and it's a perfect time. So that's what I'm going to do. And as long as you manage that well, um, and you don't do it every night. So, cause the one person that's going to tell you you're doing it wrong is your partner. Exactly. Your yep. You know, and, and, and life, life is just too short <laughs> to, to, to deal with that sort of consequence on a daily basis. So, you know, you just, you've just got to put those in that. It's interesting because the majority of people who I have on this show, that's exactly what they do. It's about prioritizing time and, and removing that distraction. So, you know, as you say, even though you know that there may be conversations, it's putting that dedicated time to your children or to your partner or whatever, because you also need to recharge in order to be a great salesman or to do whatever it is. Is the that energy management is a crucial thing as well. Hundred percent agree with you on that one. Hundred percent. Um, number six. What advice would you give an entrepreneur that you wish you had known starting out? Uh, hire the right team. <laughs> I know I talked about hire right the team when I when I brought on my business partner, our CEO of the company now, and our chief revenue officer about oh geez about twenty months ago we just exploded. 
you know, in, in growth, you know, in, in 2021, we were, we were ranked uh, by Inc magazine. They have in America, they have this list. Inc magazine comes out every year, the top, the fastest growing top 5,000 companies in the United States. And uh, in 2021, we were ranked number 1,232 in any industry. There's about 7 million companies that apply for that every year. And then we were ranked number one fastest sales training company in the United States in 2021. And it's all really because of our CEO and our CRO just helping us expand that way. And obviously we have great content and we get results for our clients. That's obviously a big part of the equation, but it's all about having the right team. If you don't have the right team, it just, everything is so slow. Well, as, as well as, is I think that, I think the, one of the best advices I got is, is you want to try and create the team as quick as possible. Cause even if you, even if you're, you know, a solopreneur, it doesn't mean you can't have a team because I think as soon as you can remove yourself from balance, you know, that juggling of 25 hats, and then you can concentrate on working on it from a strategic base rather than sort of the day-to-day actions of it. I think that's when things really start to change for you. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent, my man. Um, it's all about having the right team. I'm telling you, the, the right team it just makes so much difference. I, I can't imagine where we'd be at right now without our CR, our chief revenue officer, and our CEO. Just having the right team around it. I mean, we literally went from the first year we had one salesperson and me and my assistant to year two we were up to like thirty five salespeople. Year three last year we grew to one hundred and seventeen salespeople on three years. But it's having the right team. You don't have the right team, right culture. You can't grow like that. How how do you deal with, you know, when you've done that, um, how do you go from, okay, there's me and there's, let's say, two other people. How do you, how, how did you personally go from that stage of transition to now I'm in charge of a team? And did you ever have any challenges with micromanaging or um, letting go or anything like that? Here's the thing, here's the thing that we did. So when my CEO came on, you know, my business partner, um, I turned everything over to him. I, I did not do any of that anymore. At that point, I resigned. I was a CEO. I stepped down as a CEO, became the chairman of the board. Okay. And our CEO, our chief revenue officer, we have uh, three vice presidents. Now they do all that. What do I do? I focus on what I'm the best at training and content and getting results for our clients once they come on board and training our other sales trainers to do the same thing for our clients. So when you stick to what you do extremely well, exceptionally well, and the things you're weaker at, like running a business, not my forte, right? I was a professional salesperson, never ran a company, obviously didn't know the mistakes, didn't know what I didn't know. Right. So to me, it was, it was pretty easy to let that go into the CEO's hands just because of his experience and what he's done in the past with other companies. And that's how we scaled because I stuck to my lane and I did what I do exceptionally well. And that's all I focus on. That's it. I don't do anything else outside of that. Okay. The final question is what is your personal definition of success? Our personal definition of success as a company is the results we get for a client's period. That's how we know our company is doing what we're supposed to be doing. We have almost uh, almost 5,000 testimonials in the first, uh, well, in the first three years, which is a lot for like a sales training organization. So our, we define success by the, the results our clients get. I mean, how else can you find a success when you're a business? Yeah. There's really no other way. Results, results-based. Okay, so we're at the end of the show. Um, gives you an opportunity. I know you've mentioned the Facebook group, but if there's anything else you, and I know you've got a book coming out soon. Um, yeah, yeah. 
book written by uh, co-authored by my good friend uh, Jerry Acuff. He's the CEO of Delta Point Consulting, a large sales consulting uh, firm um, here in the United States as well. He's he's uh, he's only got fifteen clients, but they're all like Fortune one hundred clients. You don't need so, many of those. You know, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So like AstraZeneca and Merck and Pfizer and all these big companies, you know, yeah. So we're writing this book together about the new model of selling, um, selling to an unsellable generation. So it's going to be big. Book's already done, uh, but it'll be published. It won't be published till the fall of this year. So we got to, it, it takes forever. I mean, that book's been done like four months ago. And it's like, unless you're going to self-publish it, going through the publishing route, just, it's like, dude, is this like a five-year process or what, what takes so long, you know? The world's changed, you know, in, in a year. But it, is is there an audio book in the in the making for it as well? Or there will be an audio book as well. That's part of the deal we're working out. But it, you know, it, like I said, if they want to learn, if they want to learn NEPQ questions for different sales situations and sales scenarios, and they want to learn how to get their prospects to sell themselves and really pull them in, rather than push, push, like going into a boxing match every day and you you win some battles and you lose, but you're like mentally exhausted at the end of the day and then you have to wake up and do it again. Like nobody wants to go through that. So you want to learn skills that work with human behavior rather than work against it. So if they want to learn those skills, get some free resources from us, check us out. They just go to our, our uh, this Facebook group. We have a lot of free resources and it's www.salesrevolution.group. So salesrevolution.group. Right when they join, there's like two questions that there's a forum so we know what industry they're in, what they sell. And then have them check their Facebook messenger because somebody on my team will tag them a free training called the NEPQ 101 mini course. And there's just a list of like several questions for different sales scenarios that they can learn. Plus, we go live in that group about three to four times a week, me and and uh, other sales trainers that are on our team with different Q&As, different trainings. We have every industry you can think of in there. So it doesn't matter your product, service, or industry. I think we train about 150 different industries. Some industries I didn't even know existed. Crazy, you know? We, we, we signed, a, we signed a, a seatbelt manufacturer in Berlin, Germany. Uh, a couple months ago that sells seatbelts to like BMW and Land Rover. Like, oh, yeah, I guess you have to sell seatbelts. I didn't even think about that. (laughs) You just never know, you know? No, I I suppose you don't. I suppose you don't. Jeremy, it's been an absolute honor and privilege having you on the show. Thank you so much for taking your time. A little bit longer, but we've got some great golden nuggets of information. Wow, that was a lot of fun, man. I really appreciate you. That was great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's a welcome. And uh, just to wish you the uh, the greatest success in the future. Thank you, my friend. So first of all, just let me say a massive thank you for joining me today. It's lovely to know that you're out there listening. And it's great to have the emails that I get from you with suggestions about the show and what you think about the show. That's really nice. Really does help me make the show even better. If you'd like to find out more about me and the types of services I offer or my social media links, then please visit www.jeffnicholson.uk. You can also join us on the Facebook page. Just search for Success IQ Podcast, and that's a new page that we've put up that I'm trying to grow and develop. So you can tune in and find us on other stations such as Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, and of course, iTunes. And if you'd have the time, it would be great if you could pop over there, leave a rating, leave a review, because it really does help me grow the show and make the impact that I'm really looking for. So just to say, I hope you have a fantastic week. I wish you the greatest success and I look forward to speaking to you next week. Take care.